The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Good morning, Park Church. Good morning. All right, our, our text for this morning is Psalm chapter 51. Um, if you guys don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the pew back uh, right in front of you or somewhere around you. Uh, again, the text is Psalm 51. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please feel free to take one of those Bibles home as a gift from Park Church. Psalm 51. Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in, in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I want to begin by pointing out to all of you that we have a 5 p.m. service that is, would, it's just full of people that would love to have you join them at 5 p.m. Um, and so if you find that 11 cramps your style or it's really full in here and you want to be less full, um, our 5 p.m. service happens every single week. So um, you can come to that service as well. Um, but you're welcome here. If you if you're, don't, don't feel pressured, just invited. Um, strongly invited. Uh, second thing, you should have been handed this card when you walked in um, called Park Church Classes and Seminars. We've got um, really two different tracks, uh, two different tracks that you should pay attention to uh, on this card, and this card's trying to illustrate what's happening this fall and where you should find yourself 
um, should you decide to attend one of our classes. If you are new to Park Church and trying to find ways to get connected, figure out what we're all about as a community, um, when we talk about what it means to be a gospel-centered church, what, what does that mean? Um, there, the, the track there called Get Connected is for you. Um, that, that will kick off on September 14th with a four-week class called Gospel-Centered Life. And so if you're interested in just kind of dipping your toe in, finding out more about who we are and what it, uh, what it means to be a people shaped and formed by the gospel, um, that class is for you. We would love to have you join us for those four weeks. Um, if you have been around for a little while, you're wanting to learn more, um, we've got a number of classes on theology, on um, discipleship, those kinds of things that will be kicking off. Um, you can look at the tracks under Get Equipped. Um, that will kick off with a four-week class called How We Change on September 14th as well. Um, you can find out more information about those classes. You can also sign up for those classes um, online, get more information over at the information table, get info table um, over in the corner um, immediately after the service or before any of our services. Um, before we turn to Psalm 51, I, I want to take a few minutes to uh, address some questions that have arisen over the last few months um, about human sexuality and, and particularly the decision um, passed down by the Supreme Court in June concerning same-sex marriage. A number of questions have come up in our community about um, the, these things, and, and we just want to take a few minutes today to address them. Um, we're going to address them um, more extensively as we talk just about a biblical foundation for sexuality and a biblical foundation um, for marriage at our seminar our classes next Monday night. Um, but, but I want to begin here by just acknowledging that we don't often take time on a Sunday morning to address social issues from up front. Um, there are a number of reasons why we don't do that. And I think it's important for us to understand why we don't. It's not because we're afraid to. It's not because we don't think these issues are, are of vital importance to what it means to be a Christian and to follow Jesus in our world. It's just that we have chosen an approach to ministry, particularly an approach to preaching, that, that, that believes that, that our fundamental task when we gather on a Sunday is to open up this book and declare to you, kind of verse by verse, chapter by chapter, working our way through books of the Bible, um, declaring what this book says. Now, there are a number of things about this approach to ministry um, which are commendable. We, we actually believe that this is the best way as we think about, um, not, not just in terms of the next month, but over decades of, of approaching how do we go about being transformed and growing and changing as the people of God. It is not by addressing issue upon issue upon issue, but, but through a, a long-term vision of working our way through the scriptures. Uh, but this approach also has weaknesses. It means that there, are, um, there will be sometimes um, very, very pressing issues, um, very, very pressing, pressing things that, that are going on in our culture um, that um, we won't stand up immediately and talk about. Um, things that, that seem to be need, need to be immediately addressed oftentimes won't be immediately addressed from up front. Um, but, but rather, our, our hope is it will take time to think about these things and talk about them, um, particularly as they come up in the Scriptures. Um, that being said, um, there are other reasons why we're, we're oftentimes slow to talk about social issues. Um, we live in a day and age in which um, civil, real discourse has been reduced to 140 characters, an Instagram post, um, or shouting matches uh, on TV. Um, our hope is that this community would be marked by a different sort of culture, um, a, a thoughtful engagement with the issues of our day, um, uh, being more, more quick to speak, to, to listen, not to speak, um, being slower to speak to these things. And when we do speak, to think, to, to speak biblically, um, to speak with humility and to speak with love. 
Um, that being said, in the providence of God, in three massive social issues, um, really have had the volume turned up on them um, in, in recent months in our country. And I think we'd be remiss not to just take a few minutes this Sunday and, and think about them, particularly thinking about the issue of sexuality. Uh, the, the abortion industry has been um, revealed to be far more horrifying and devastating than I think any of us ever imagined in the past few weeks. Um, th- this is an issue of justice. It's not just a political e- ideology. It's not a, uh, even primarily an issue of Republican or Democrat. This is an issue uh, of children are being killed, women and men are being lied to, and, and, and the, the, the horrors that are happening in this industry we must learn to think about them and speak to them. I would be remiss in a room this size um, to, to not recognize the fact that there are um, within this room women and men who, who, have, who have been affected, directly affected by this industry, who have perhaps had abortions or encouraged them. I want you to hear from my lips, we love you, and it is our hope that we can walk alongside you as brothers and sisters pursuing submission to King Jesus, knowing his grace, knowing his mercy, and knowing his love. Um, Over the last few months, the issue of racism has reared its head. um, uh, Again, revealing to us that this isn't simply an issue from back in the 60s or the 1800s or the Civil War or, or something far back there. It's an issue that is occurring, that is in existence right now in our own city and, and really in all of the cities in the United States. And not just as a social issue, but as an issue of the heart. Let me be as clear as I possibly can. The Bible and the gospel particularly leaves absolutely no room for racism. Racism is foundationally an absolute denial of the lordship of Jesus over all the world. It is a declaration that Jesus is not king. Um, And and, and to ignore this issue, to think this issue is something far off, um, that um, maybe in some backwards county of the United States they have to deal with, and not something that we need to think about and wrestle with in our own hearts, is at best culpable ignorance. And at worst, and probably more likely, that simply ignoring the commands of Jesus to love our neighbor and to declare war on sin in our own hearts. But we need to learn how to think, to wrestle, to fight against racism in this community and as it exists systemically in our world. But last, what what are we supposed to do um, with homosexuality, with the nature of um, sexuality in general, and with the Supreme Court's ruling in June? Um, There were two prevalent responses, um, not just in the culture at large, not just in social media, but we even found them um, at at work in our own community. Um, Both of these responses we believe to be antithetical to what the Bible teaches about sexuality and about love. The the, the first group of people um, saw the the ruling by the Supreme Court in in, in June as this apocalyptic unraveling of everything good in the universe. It signaled the end of the existence of the church and the life of the church in the world. And their speech was marked by rhetoric, by hatred, by fear, and by um, just a sense that we are, we are in some deep entrenched culture war um, in which we need to pull out our guns um, and, and aim, at, aim them at the other side. 
On, on the flip side of that, on the other hand, there was a, a massive re response, um, for, even from people in our community, um, declaring, kind of celebrating love wins, and saw that, uh, that ruling as the victory of love over injustice, over bigotry, and over hatred. Again, we think both of these responses are unbiblical. Um, and, and so how are we supposed to think about these things? How do we wrestle with these things as Christians and learn how to speak and live in the light of them um, within our city and within our culture? As Christians, we always want to think about things through the lens of the gospel and through the lens of the lordship of Jesus. We always begin with the declaration, with the confession, Jesus is Lord. We believe that he is king. We believe that he reigns. We believe that he created this world. He created things like food and drink and sex. And he made them and he's given them to us as gifts. And let me be really, really clear. He's given to us sexuality as a gift, not a right, a gift. And this gift he's given to be used in ways that honor him and trust him and acknowledge that he's the one that provides these things. And he's, um, and he's spoken very, very clearly in this book as to how this gift of sexuality is to be used. Um, it's to be used in the context of marriage, to be enjoyed, um, wonderfully enjoyed in the context of marriage between a man and a woman, representing um, the, the relationship between Christ and the church in their differences, and then coming together in marriage and that, that union being expressed um, sexually. So Jesus is king, and he has a right to speak to these things. But he's not just king. He's a good king. He's a wise king. But when he gives us these gifts, and within particular contexts, like marriage, he's not doing so because he's mean. He's not doing so because he's wanting to ruin your life. He's doing so because he's wise, and he's good. And these gifts are to be received as gifts from his hand, and used in ways that honor him and trust him as being both Lord and King and good. But we don't just stop with, with the lordship of Jesus. We also acknowledge the reality um, that, that it's held up in every page of this book, including the text we're going to look at this morning, that, that sin has corrupted everything. It's corrupted our own hearts, our own desires, our own wills, our own actions. And let me be clear here, for every single one of us, sex has has been corrupted. Our desires, our longings have been corrupted such that um, if left unchecked, if we follow every desire that rears its head in our hearts, we will be destroyed. It'll kill us. This is not just true of homosexuals or heterosexuals. It's true for every single person in this room. This must temper the way this conversation is had. It, it shouldn't temper our confidence in the word of God and what God has said, but it should absolutely temper the way that we speak to one another, the way we walk, walk alongside one another, the way that we care for one another, what we post on Twitter and Facebook. We, we are a people who, who recognize the universality of sin, the universality of our need for grace and for mercy and for the kindness of God. It means that you're sitting in a room right now. You're friends with people on Facebook and Twitter who are overwhelmed by issues of desire, um, issues of identity, just like you. Just like you. And so we must learn to be a people marked by grace, marked by humility, 
marked by a deep confidence in what God has said, but not using that to, as a battering ram to declare war on people, but rather as a way of walking in humility and grace as those who our, our only hope is the kindness of God for every single one of us. And if you're in this room today and you struggle with same-sex attraction, but please look at me. We love you. You are welcome here. Our hope is to walk alongside you in grace and humility, longing to experience and know the love of God and to be transformed by that love together. You are not alone. Sin affects us all. Um, Confusion affects us all. And our hope is that, that we would trust what God has said, be transformed by the love of this God, and be made new. And last... But we believe in a God who has not simply created the world and given us gifts, um, uh, who, who we've rebelled against, and who, who, um, where, where sin has um, corrupted all of us and twisted all of our hearts and desires and ways of thinking. We also believe in a God that will celebrate today in Psalm 51, who is gracious, who is merciful, who is kind. He, he loves to receive his people He calls us back to himself. He loves to show mercy. He loves to show grace. He loves to show kindness. This is the mark of the church. Not a political agenda. Not a political party. Not not even moral stances and ethical positions. We are a people who've been redeemed and rescued by God. That's what defines us. That's what marks us. That's what should shape our life together. And so if you're here today, and and for you, and this was maybe the final gauntlet or or at least a massive gauntlet in in the the great cultural war that you're on, and and your, your, your language and your thoughts have been marked by fear, despair, anger, rage, a sense of, hey, it's time to tighten up the hatches and, and put up our walls and put up our defenses and, and go to war. Man, my plea with you is to trust and believe we serve a gracious God who is king. He wasn't surprised in June. He's not surprised. He is merciful and gracious and good. If you're in this room and for you that decision, um, what was the great victory of love over injustice and bigotry, I would implore you to see and to understand freedom, joy, life is to be found in him and only in him, by trusting him, by submitting to him, by trusting even against all our other thoughts and feelings and desires that he is good and what he says is best. But oh, may we be a congregation, a community marked by grace, by a deep love for the gospel, a deep reliance on his word, and and humility and patience as we walk with one another and as we walk in a city where people don't believe what we believe. Um, I want to encourage you, if you have questions um, uh, about these things, next Monday we're going to walk through the scriptures and think about sexuality in the context of friendship and marriage and and what God has given it um, to us to be used for. And so I encourage encourage you to sign up for that class, that seminar, um, and be here with us next Monday night. As we think about marriage, we think about sex, we think ultimately in light of the gospel and the word of God. Let's pray now and turn to Psalm 51.
Father, I pray now that you would send your spirit and in the light of the work of Jesus, that you would so convince us, so overwhelm us with a sense of your steadfast covenant love, a, a, a deep trust in your mercy, a deep awareness in, in what you're like as a kind God, a merciful God, a holy God, and a gracious God. That's a result of our minutes reflecting on this chapter of Scripture would be that we would run to you. That we would bring our sin, our stains, the things that shame us, the things that um, we've been trying to run from our whole lives. We bring them to you and find ourselves washed and cleansed and welcomed. In other words, Father, come and by your Spirit do what no sermon can do. But convince a human heart that you're real and you're good and you're merciful and you welcome men and women like us. In your name we pray, amen. David's political career didn't start off very well. He, he was anointed king, um, really the, the, the one his dad said, surely not this guy. Um, that's how well it started. His dad was convinced that he was the wrong guy. Um, he, he was anointed king uh, by Samuel um, and, and yet would have to wait several decades before he would actually take up the throne and, and become king. Um, he won battle after battle after battle for his King David, um, even as a shepherd boy defeating the giant, the Philistine champion um, Goliath, um, and, and yet found himself on the run. This king that he'd fought battles on behalf of, this king that he'd won victories for, um, deciding that, that David was a threat to his throne, um, and he needed to have David extinguished and killed. Um, he spent many, many years um, in the wilderness, in the desert, hiding out in caves, and, 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 but he wasn't alone. Um, there was a group of men, if you maybe um, know it historically as David's mighty men, um, who followed him into the wilderness, who, who swore their allegiance and their lives to him, even, in, even endangering their own families and in their own lives as, as ultimately kind of committing an act of treason by swearing their allegiance to David. Um, the, these men, among them was a man named Uriah. Uriah fought alongside David. He was among David's close friends. Um, he went to battle um, um, for David. He fought um, for David. And ultimately, when David became king and began to reign over all of Israel, it, these mighty men um, would lead out David's armies um, against, uh, against the Philistines, against the nations that would try to take over Israel. And they fought on David's behalf, and they fought valiantly. A day came, though, as, as David was king, um, his, his armies, Uriah included, and his mighty men um, were sent off to battle. And David, rather than going with his men, going with his armies, as would have been the custom at the time, decided that he would stay home. We don't know why he decided to stay in Jerusalem at his palace. Um, much has been made over um, trying to theorize around why he didn't go. Um, but really, all the text tells us is that most kings were out going to battle, and David decided to stay in Jerusalem. One evening, he went um, to the roof of his palace, and while um, he was reflecting over his city, he looked down um, to a rooftop and, and saw a woman bathing, a beautiful woman. He, he desired this woman, he longed for this woman, and he decided he would have this woman. He sent to get some information about her and found her to be Bathsheba, 
the wife of David's friend Uriah. This didn't dissuade David at all. He sent for her, had her brought to him. He slept with her that night and sent her home, committing adultery. Um, Bathsheba discovers um, that she's pregnant, sends word to David uh, that she's pregnant, and David suddenly finds himself in a bit of trouble. And so he sends to the front, has uh, Uriah shipped home uh, under the guise that he wants to sit down with his old friend, his old hardened battle friend, and hear from him, um, from his mouth, exactly how things are going on the battlefront. Um, how is the fighting? How are things going? All the while, David has a plan. He's going to bring Uriah in. He's going to have a nice long conversation with his friend. And then rather than sending Uriah directly back out to the battle, he's going to send him home to his wife. And there, the problem will be solved. Uriah comes. He spends the day with David. Um, and at the end of their time, David says, hey, um, before going back to the battle, why don't you go home, take a bath, be clean, and spend some time with your wife? Uriah says, far be it from me. I, I'm not, um, as, as your servants are out fighting these battles, sleeping on the ground, their lives on the line, they may be attacked tonight. I can't go home and, and enjoy the comforts of my home and my wife. No, I, I'm going to sleep outside um, and then go back to your men tomorrow. David the next morning wakes and before Uriah leaves, sends for him again and says, hey, stay one more day with me and tonight we'll have a feast and then you can return. Uriah stays with him. David's plan is this time, um, this man of integrity, this man who, who didn't want to even enjoy anything that David's men were not enjoying, um, um, I'm going to get him drunk and then send him home. And so David keeps the wine pouring all night long and then sends Uriah out, hopefully sending him home to Bathsheba. But Uriah refuses to go home, sleeps on the porch. And then the next morning, David sends him back to the battlefront with instructions for his general Joab. And those instructions were very specific. Uriah, um, since he refused to sleep with his wife, um, was to be placed at the front lines um, and then um, placed in a part of the battle um, that was most fierce. And then um, when the battle became most fierce, the rest of David's men, the rest of the, the army was to withdraw, um, leaving Uriah exposed to be killed. Joab complies, obeys his king. Uriah is killed, word is sent to David, and David's cold-hearted response to Joab is don't think much of it, that these things happen after all in all battles. Who, who knows how he was to die anyway? The prophet Nathan is sent to David. And he's sent to David by God with a story. And here's the story. Uh, my king, there are two men, and I don't know what to do with this. Uh, one man is wealthy. He owns lots and lots of land. He owns lambs and cattle. And he is, is wealthy almost beyond imagining. He, he owns a lot. And, and next door to him is another man. This man owns almost nothing. All, in fact, he owns is one single lamb that he cares for, that he loves, that he raises almost as a child. So some visitors from another land came to visit the wealthy man. Um, and, and the wealthy man, knowing that he needed to practice hospitality, and knowing that he needed to, to, to prepare a meal for these visitors, rather than slaughtering one of his own sheep, rather than slaughtering one of his own lambs, he, he sends um, some of his servants to take the lamb um, from his poor neighbor. He brings that lamb, has the lamb slaughtered, and, and fed to his visitors. What should we do? But David, the king, rises in a fit of rage and as so long as I am king this man shall not live 
in one of the greatest acts of prophetic courage ever practiced. Nathan said, you are the man. You are the man. The moment we've spent our lives running from. When all of our guilt comes crashing down in our heads in a moment of revelation. The moment when all of those thoughts, all of those actions, the myriads of ways in which we have willingly and at times accidentally left behind us a trail of tears and pain and brokenness. When we've willingly refused to acknowledge God and in this moment, this moment comes crashing down on David and we've spent our lives running from ever having to face our own sin, our own wrongdoing, our own propensity to break everything our hands touch. I've known men who who became atheists. And when you drill down, it, it really had nothing to do with philosophical arguments. It had to do with the reality of they never wanted to hear those words, you are the man. You see, the reality of sin, the reality of our own guilt, the reality of our own brokenness, and if we don't find a a, a way of escape, if we don't find something to deal with it, it's going to drive us to, to one of two places. And, and, and each of us will eventually have to deal with it. It will either drive you to a crushing sense of your own guilt. It will paralyze you uh, under the weight of your own sin, the, the weight of the, um, your own corruption, the weight of just the, the fact of, of how much havoc you have wrought in this world. Or to utterly disconnect from reality. To ignore the pain that you cause, to ignore the, the, the reality, the real patterns of sin and rebellion in your life. It will lead you to one of those two extremes. But here in this song, we encounter something completely different. We encounter a way not to, to find our way either to being crushed or to being utterly disconnected from reality. No, we we find a way through. And what we discover is a man not primarily known for his guilt, not primarily known as an adulterer and a murderer, but a man who's known for singing. And the way through is something that the Bible calls repentance. It's not a popular topic, and it's often a, a deeply misunderstood topic. I mean, it's often confused with the the nature of remorse or being sorry for the effects of our sin. But but what David walks us through in this psalm is not remorse, it's repentance. And so in the time that remains, I want us to walk through this psalm and learn from David, what does God call us to? What is this thing, repentance? How do we deal with the conviction that we are the guilty ones? So, So look with me. 
Beginning in verse 1 and 2, um, David outlines for us um, something that, that must serve as kind of the foundation um, of what we must know in order for us to ever pursue repentance. He says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Here's the thing that every single one of us must deal with, must know, um, before we know anything else about this world, or about sin, or about repentance. That the God who rules the universe is a God of steadfast love. The God that we repent to, the God that we've sung to, the God that we uh, made a confession of sin to, do you know what he's like? A.W. Tozer, at the beginning of his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, says what you think about, when you think about God, is the most important thing about you. So what do you think about when you consider the nature and the character of God? What is he like? David begins here. He is a God of covenant love. He is a God of steadfast love. He is a God of not just mercy, abundant mercy. And so David comes to this God pleading for mercy, pleading for grace, pleading for help. And it's not just kind of thrown out in midair in the hopes that maybe this crazy God, this angry God, this judgmental God will somehow find in his heart in this moment to be merciful and to be marked by love. No, he says, have mercy to me according to, in other words, in line with your character. He knows that God is merciful. He knows that God is loving you. When you think about God, what do you think? Do you think of one who might show mercy? Who might, maybe, maybe today, he'll be loving. Or do you know that this holy, good God is marked most deeply, most deeply by mercy and by love. So we must know the character of God. And then verses 3 through 6, David knows his sin. So, so right there, right off the bat in verse 3, for I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. He, he knows and he recognizes not just what God is like, but he's also been confronted through Nathan with the nature and the character of his sin. And it's very, very important that we observe or we understand exactly what David says about his sin. And first in verse, in verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Such that you, God, may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, one of my favorite New Testament scholars in the whole world in making reference to this text, um, and I'm telling you this quote because I really like the word he uses, um, says that this, um, at least on the surface, appears to be world-class balderdash. Isn't that a word we should all use far more? Balderdash. Commit, make a commitment to using that word three times this week. Um, it, it'll make you a better person. Um, and, and here's why he says that. Because it appears on the surface, at least, that everybody but God was sinned against in this deal. Right? I mean, David, the king, not going to battle with his men. I, I don't know if it's sin, but, but 
Something wrong with that. David, the king, looking out at his friend's wife and saying, I will have sex with her. Bringing her to himself and sleeping with her. This man given charge by God to protect his people, to lead them into holiness, but rather pursuing um, at best, please hear me, at best an adulterous relationship with this woman. This man um, murdering his friend, a man of integrity and loyalty named Uriah. This king abusing his power and co-opting his general's orders to see what he wants done that he might be kept safe. This man hard-hearted in response to the death of his friend. Oh, we have sin against Israel. We have a sin against Bathsheba. We've got sin against Uriah. We've got sin against, um, we've got sin against his general Joab. We've got, we got sins against everybody happening anywhere. I mean, you can imagine David's scene. I mean, you can imagine David thinking, even in this moment, um, as, as God brings accusation, like, hey, God, maybe I sinned against Bathsheba, Uriah, Israel, but you were nowhere on the scene when this happened. You were nowhere on the scene. When this happened, the God who gave me life and breath, who gave me this crown and my palace and family, who invented the gift of sex, who's given me victory after victory after victory after victory, wasn't on the scene. David didn't care about God that night. Here's what this text tells us about sin. Before it is ever against another person, it is always against the God who has given you life and breath and every good thing. All sin, all sin, it's against God. Ultimately, his judgments are true. His judgments are what are due us. As David knows his sin, first and foremost, to be against God. Secondly, he knows that his sin goes all the way down. This isn't just a random decision that was made on a rooftop. It's not just um, a mishap of behavior. He doesn't try to dismiss it as something that maybe came, some evil influence that came from the outside. And if Bathsheba maybe would know, like, to put something over her, her house, then, then this wouldn't happen. Or, or maybe if I didn't, I, who knows? I mean, but it wasn't something outside of him. He recognizes right off the bat here as he talks about being brought forth in iniquity that sin is something that goes all the way down. It's been there from the very, very beginning. This isn't the result of some outside influence. This isn't the result of someone else. No, this is David's heart. This isn't merely a decision. This is, this, this is hardwired into who David is. He recognizes the fact that sin is not merely a bad decision. It's something that he's grown up into. It is something that he's been made from the very, very beginning. He knows where that beginning was. Verse 6, behold, you delight in truth. This word truth, I mean, it really means wholeness, integrity, um, uh, uh, utter reliance upon God. 
You delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. He knows that this sin that was there even when he was conceived, this sin um, is ultimately not, not a result of a bad choice, but on a heart that does not trust, does not rely on, does not cling to the God who made him. And so David knows his God. He knows the character of his God. He knows the reality of his sin, that it goes all the way down. And now, what does he ask for? Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Um, One of the best things about living in Denver specifically as compared to a place like Chicago. And I just want to preface this with, I love Chicago. It's a great city. Except its snow is awful. And so here, here, here's the difference. Here, um, it, it will snow 17 feet at 3 o'clock on a Tuesday. By Wednesday at 9 a.m., it's like this. <laughs> that night, 14 feet. Next day, 16. Everyone's wearing shorts. But, but in other words, over and over and over, you're reminded of just, everything just gets covered. And spring snow here is amazing because it just, it's just thick and like whipped cream. It's amazing. It just covers everything with just this layer of purity. In Chicago, it's not like that. In Chicago, it snows in October The clouds roll in, it snows in October, and it doesn't stop snowing until May. And you'd think like, oh, it's just constantly being covered with this this layer of of just white snow. How beautiful. It's not like that. Um, The first three minutes, the snow is on the ground. You've got to catch it in those first three minutes. It's beautiful. And then minute number four, it's like tons of little tiny people went around with with spray paint bottles and just covered the entire city, Smitty. Um, it covered the entire smitty, um, city. Let's see it again. Um, in, a complete, in a complete layer of just gray, nasty, disgusting smudge that does not leave at all until one day in May it turns 33 degrees and it slowly begins to melt. Although there will still be piles of gray nastiness um, even into July. It's like Arapahoe Basin, you can ski in July. Um, in Chicago, you can see nasty gray mountains of nastiness in grocery store parking lots in May. Um, and, and, and then it just stays there. And so the sky is gray, and the ground is gray. And it's just gray for like nine months. And it just isn't white as snow. But, but here's a God who makes us white as snow. And some of you have walked in this morning, and maybe you're a Christian, maybe you're not a Christian, um, but maybe if you're not a Christian, you've walked in, um, and you just immediately feel condemned and judged. And I pray it's not because anybody's actually condemning and judging you. It is because you, you see this stain. Like Macbeth and Shakespeare, and it's just there with you everywhere you go. And you walk into church, and it's just all the more prevalent. And just washing out damn Bought and it won't go anywhere. Here is a God who washes clean. No shame. 
No guilt. No spot to carry around. White snow. David doesn't stop there. He asks, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Let me hear joy and gladness. He recognizes not just that he needs stains removed, and he is not whole. He's broken. His whole life is marked by a limp. And he pleads with God, this God of mercy, this God of steadfast love, oh, come and make me whole again. He doesn't stop there. Not just that he would be made whole, that he'd hear again joy and gladness, and not just the the sound of condemnation and brokenness. He he asks specifically, oh, create in me a clean heart. He comes to this God, and he recognizes if the sin goes all the way down, then the only way this problem is solved is a brand new heart. A heart that desires God, that trusts God, that relies upon God above all things. And so he pleads with God, not just to have his his record wiped clean, not just that shame and guilt would go away, not just that he'd be made whole, but he'd be made new. And last, he asks, verse 11, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Ultimately, what David asks for is not merely um, that he would be clean and made whole and given a new heart, but that he would be welcomed home. To enjoy forever and ever and ever the goodness of the presence of this merciful, steadfast, loving God. And there to find joy, there to, f- there to be welcomed not merely as a forgiven servant, but as a son. He goes on in the following paragraph and describes three results of this. What will his life be marked by if this kind of mercy is shown? What does it look like to be a people who've experienced and known and continue to know this kind of mercy? He says three things. One in verse 13, I will teach transgressors your ways. It doesn't mean that you get to kind of a, just a get out of jail free card and you don't have to ever think about it anymore. No, no, what David says will happen if this kind of mercy is shown to him, this kind of grace washes him and cleanses him, is that he will begin to walk alongside fellow transgressors, fellow sinners, fellow men and women who need to be remade and reshaped and made clean. And, and he'll come not as a condemner, but walking alongside, teaching them the ways of this God. Oh, if you've experienced the grace of God, if you know the mercy of God, then the first thing you'll do is not begin to create parties over there of sinners that you rage against and kind of declare war on. No, and you will take fellow strugglers along, walking alongside, fighting our sin together. This is what friendship is in the church. Strugglers. Those who've been broken by sin but redeemed by grace. Walking together with humility, with grace, with love. He says that he will sing and he will praise. Verse 14 and 15. Oh, that, that, that if you've tasted this kind of love, if you've tasted this kind of grace, oh, you won't shut up about God. You won't ever stop speaking of a God who's this merciful this gracious, this kind, this welcoming. As we close, 
How do we become kind of people who know this steadfast love of God? Who rather, in, rather than in our sin running from him, rather than in our shame getting as far away from him as we can and avoiding any talk of what God wants for us or desires from us, how do we become the kind of people that when we see our sin, we're not crushed by guilt, we're not running from its reality, but rather we come again and again and again and maybe today for the very first time come to this God and experience this love. How do we know that he's merciful? How do we know his steadfast love? There's a scene that occurs in John's gospel. A number of scholars, commentators on John's gospel have have said that that John clearly, as he's reporting what Pilate says and what happens in this trial, um, in um, in John's mind is Psalm 51. Um, This this moment occurs that the people are demanding um, the death of Jesus, asserting the guilt, the treasonous guilt of Jesus. And and so Pilate, um, trying to appease the crowd, at the same time trying to avoid having to put Jesus to death, he he sends Jesus back to be beaten. And so Jesus is beaten and he's scourged and he's insulted and he's spit upon. And and then he's covered in blood and beaten to within an inch of his life. Um, A crown of thorns is thrust on his head and blood is streaming down his face. A robe, a mock royal robe is thrown over his shoulders. And he is presented to the people um, as as a king. He's presented. And in this, this dramatic scene that ensues, Pilate presents Jesus and says, Behold the man. This is the steadfast love of God. Guilt does not fall on us, but instead falls on his son. Rather than any of us having to stand before the righteous judge and king of all the earth and hear Nathan's charge, you are the man. No, Jesus stands in our place, beaten, mocked, crushed, and ultimately killed. He is the man. This is the steadfast love of God. May we come and run to our Father. Let's pray. And so God, even now, show yourself to be good. Show yourself to be merciful. Show yourself to be trustworthy. May not a single heart in this room run from you, but oh God, even now, even in this moment, even at this table, may we run to you. In your name we pray, amen.